Welcome back to this series of audio recording files we like to call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. It's something of a thinking person's podcast. At least I'd like to think so. I hope you're doing well and not undergoing too much stress because of the pandemic that has turned our world upside down. Good grief. Even though this uh, particular episode or the conversation was recorded before the pandemic kicked in, there's a ton of application, I think, for the season that we're in now and for many seasons to come in our life. Today, we're going to talk with Cindy Wang Brandt a little bit more than we have in the past. You can find more information about her in the show notes. She's an author and a podcaster. She's got a parenting conference coming out, actually, as of this recording, uh, next week, which will be the week after Easter. So you can catch that. Uh, if, you've listen- if you're listening to this after that conference, no problem. You'll be able to track her down. Just Google Unfundamentalist Parent, and you'll find her blog. Also her book, it's called Parenting Forward. She has a lot of good things to say. I'm thankful for our time together. So we're going to talk some today about uh, religious systems that we come from. I'm going to talk about a little bit about the religious system that I grew up in. And I want to be careful, like I want to be respectful. I think it's a real tendency on all of our parts to judge those in the past with values that they may not have had, with enlightenment that they may not have had. You know, you and I have been exposed to thinking and ideas that, you know, we've been able to critique and challenge what's gone on before us, they may or may not have had access to some of that same kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So too often, you know, I assume that I would do it differently than they did. And maybe I would, maybe not. But um, I'd like to hold out some grace to the former generations. Having said all that, they just weren't aware of the kinds of ways they were requiring their people and their young people to suppress emotions uh, and to suppress the physicality of who they were. And I'm thinking specifically of the religious, constrictive, conservative context that I came out of. Good people, but the system required that you were very composed and kept yourself in check, so to speak. Some of this was cultural. I mean, certainly in the 50s and the early 60s, you had a lot of conservative, composed, stoic kind of like don't hug, don't show your emotions kind of way of living in the world in general. Of course, all of that just blew up, erupted in the mid and late 60s, and the world just couldn't hold it back. And religion is always a decade or two or generation or two behind. So the religion I grew up in was simply trying to play catch up. I mean, things changed so rapidly and they were unable to to keep up. And everything in the system I came from became about holiness and purity, and staying clean. And there's some value in that, but it only goes so far. My son gave me a great book over this past Christmas. It's a book by Richard Beck called Unclean. And I think it really gets at some of these issues really well. Um, Richard Beck talks a lot about the psychology of disgust, how disgust is often a reflexive, expulsive, often involuntary move. And then he connects the dots with church systems and how often when we're dealing with something new or with someone different, we're simply going through a type of disgust psychology. 
So our movements and our reactions kind of mirror disgust psychology. And of course, in the church, moral purity is achieved by separating, by cleansing, by removing. And so it, it easily, he talks about it, it, it easily connects with this disgust psychology. As a side note, you know, recently, last year, when I went through the formal decision <laughs> to be more hospitable to LGBTQ, because at some point it had to become formal, um, those who disagreed with me, I can tell looking back, I mean, they, they often acted in disgust. There was a there was a visceral reaction for some of them. Not all of them. Some of them just disagreed with me and were still relatively compassionate and gracious. And I would say my direct superiors did really well in that area. But there were others within that particular denomination that they just couldn't help themselves. And their response was so strong. And it was a type of disgust psychology, I think, that was kicking in at that level. Beck also talks about some other interesting things, how purity metaphors activate a magical kind of thinking about contamination logic, and with contamination logic, contact and proximity become paramount considerations. So one of the favorite verses quoted to me over the years growing up was, abstain from all appearances of evil, which is tough to do, to abstain from every single appearance and by the way, what's your definition of evil? If your definition is different than mine, uh, it's a it's a losing game. I cannot stay away from all the evil that <laughs> that you think exists out there if I don't consider it evil as well. Um, he talks about other interesting things, but sexual sins in particular. Sexual sins seem to be regulated by the metaphors of contamination, disgust, and of purity. For example, we don't ever talk about economic purity or dietary purity, but we've seemed to have associated the word sexual impurity. And I think this says something. And among other things, it creates greater shame and self-loathing for certain classes of sin, namely physical sexual classes of sin. I grew up in a loving environment in many ways, but in other ways, a very odd disembodied type of environment where I was basically indirectly taught that the body was bad. And of course, the church equated Paul's teaching on the flesh to the body, and so it became bad. There was justification for them teaching me that the body was bad. But I think it's the wrong way to read Paul talking about flesh. The Greek word that Paul uses is sarx, S-A-R-X. It's much more nuanced than just your physical flesh and blood body. Unfortunately, Paul, well, for good or for bad, I don't know, he often pits sarx, again, translated as flesh, against the spirit. And so the idea is that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. And I hope you can see the dualistic nature of that idea and how that's not particularly healthy. And when you think, it's interesting, because the Son of God came in the flesh. That's what John 1 tells us, the Word became flesh. So flesh must be good too, right? But that whole idea was almost completely lost on the good folks who raised many of us in conservative environments. 
It seems to me that ego is probably the closest word to use when referring to Paul's sarks. So for Paul, sarks is the false ego. So my people probably thought they were doing right, but the reality is the only thing they ever really taught about the body was to cover it up. Long sleeves, long pants, long shirts, I mean, whatever it takes. The skin, that's the root of all kinds of problems. One of the favorite verses that this group will whip out, and man, I had it used against me often growing up, was the whole idea of when God made a big old coat for Adam and Eve when they were naked. And of course, the inference was, well, it wasn't just inferred, it was told to me that God cares so much about purity and holiness and separateness and cleanliness. Cleanliness, is that the word? Yeah, cleanliness, that he made this big coat, you know, to cover up Adam and Eve because they were sinful, they were naked, they were showing too much skin. (laughs) That is one way to translate it. Well, all this negative body talk, it caused a lot of people to push thoughts way, way, way down, suppressing them down and in. And I hope you know what that means, right? Well, it means sooner or later, all those thoughts are going to come out somewhere. And boy, did they. There was, and there still is, so much shame projected out and onto people who don't approach sexuality in the quote-unquote orthodox way. But what most of it is, in my opinion, is people who have just simply never dealt with the disembodiment of their religion, have never really worked through the implications of the incarnation. And as such, they have so much frustration and anger over all of it that when others do something different, it gives them an excuse. That when others do something different, it just gives them an excuse to lash out, to judge, to castigate, to separate, to scapegoat. And to shame. And it winds up becoming a religion of bondage and of locking people up and keeping God locked up. I don't know who wrote it, but I love the quote Keep people free for God and keep God free for people. I mean, can you imagine if we just kept that at the forefront of our thinking, if all religious institutions simply had that as their mission? I talk about all of this and more with Cindy Wang Brandt. Yeah, uh, I think I think there are a lot of projection. I mean, you hear about a lot of pastors that are very homophobic end up coming out of the closet later. So there, there's something. Yeah, I, I think the thing that I'm learning about shame is that is that it's not. It's very much the way your body responds to toxic doctrines or toxic environments. And it's not a cognitive and academic exercise. Um, And so that's why a lot of people who have maybe deconstructed, like they know cognitively that they don't believe this anymore, that they've changed their minds, but they still feel and they still react Um, in fear and in guilt and in a lot of um, self-deprecation in the worst way. Um, So you quickly jump from, oh, you don't like what I said to I am bad, right? That leap is is shame speaking. Um, And so, yeah, I think what I really want for people is to take care of their bodies right now, because I think that there's been a lot of work done on 
um, academic and cognitive deconstruction, but we haven't taken the time and the care for our bodies as much. And I think that that's the language that shame um, speaks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people that are more expert at this than I am, but just from the conversations that I've had with people on my podcast and learning about religious trauma, just a little pitch for my own podcast. I've been running a series on parenting after religious trauma and uh, my co-host is a therapist who specializes in religious trauma. So uh, almost everything I'm saying, I've learned from him, um, Brian Peck at Religious Trauma Institute. So yeah, I'm just kind of trying to think about how to talk about these things that for those of us who have faith shifted, who have religious trauma, and how we can heal from some of that toxicity uh, is to really care for our bodies, to listen to our own bodies, to let to to help it feel safe again. <laughs> I think if we feel safe, then we don't have shame, right? I think shame is a response to unsafety, a response to somebody's going to control me, somebody's going to make me do something I don't want to do, somebody's going to make me feel bad. Um, so that's. That's what I'm thinking right now. I'm still kind of formulating my thoughts around this as I'm learning. Yeah. Me too. And I think if you if you factor that in, feeling unsafe. Well, so when you said feeling unsafe, where my mind went to was back to the theology of being separate from God. And so, you know, when you, when one of your spiritual quote unquote laws is that you were born in sin and you're separated from God, I mean, mm. that starts us out initially with unsafe feelings. It can't get more unsafe than that. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. I, <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, the original sin doctrine is so damaging to children and to all of us because yeah, it sets us up in life in a way where we can't trust ourselves. We're unsafe. We have to, we have to earn our love. It's so weird because growing up, I was always taught that God's love was unconditional, but that's really um, dissonant from its doctrine. A conditional grace is not grace at all, is it? Because it's built on conditions, not grace. So it undermines the whole thing. And it's true, too many religious systems have a type of cognitive dissonance at their heart. They say things are unconditional, but they're really not. They say things are unconditional, but if you push and prod a little bit, you find out that they're really not. And I should say I'm implicated in all of this too. I'm, I've certainly lived more than one day of my life as a conditional human being. So it's something we all got to strive to fight against. Cindy Wing Brandt talks about a thin theology in her book. I asked her what she meant by that. A thin theology is one that is not true. <laughs> It's a false gospel. <laughs> uh, I think that there are a lot of ways that we try to um, kind of that chaos we talked about, how fundamentalists fear chaos. So I think that we try to control the chaos by building a theology that kind of just addresses surface issues that patch things up on the surface, but it doesn't address the truest, the most authentic parts of the human experience. So if a theology feels untrue to you, for example, the original sin, 
I mean, that is a doctrine that is well established in a lot of Orthodox churches. Like that's, that's a central tenet of Christianity. But to me, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't feel true. When I look at a baby, I do not think this baby is sinful. (laughs) When I look at the most, the worst criminal there ever was, I see that there is, there is good in them. And I see that they are a product of what the world has done to them. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie Joker. I actually didn't either, but I understand that the story about it's an origin story of Joker and he, he was bullied. He was severely bullied and it's no excuse for someone's behavior, but I'm just saying that the original sin doctrine is, does not feel true. And so to me, that is a thin theology. We've talked a lot about the original sin doctrine on this podcast in other episodes, but it's amazing how much that has influenced um, Christianity in the West and therefore the entire structure of the West because so much of it is built upon religion. But I think it's safe to say, well, I'll just I'll say it this way. It's my opinion that it's just not a very safe feeling world for a lot of religious peoples. It's not a benevolent world. Sounds like something Richard Rohr would say. It's a world filled with a wrathful, angry God. Original sin tells us that God can't even couldn't even be in our presence because of sin. So we're separated. So, you know, we had to do something. Again, get the coat out, cover up from the wrathful, angry God. In effect, Jesus became that coat. I mean, that's the way it was presented to me. Jesus became the thing that protected us from God's anger. And therefore, it's an insecure place. And it's kind of crazy because it's a, it's a world where if our own fathers and mothers acted out in wrathful ways, we wouldn't stand for it at least not anymore, based on, you know, where our thinking has gone and how we've been enlightened over the last couple of generations. And yet we still ascribe these things to God. And I think we get it all backwards because God is love. That's the beginning. That's the end. That's the whole story. God is love. It's very sad because it's, like I said, you can unbelieve that kind of a really terrible God, <laughs> a monster of a God that would do stuff like that. But you can unbelieve it with your brain, but it takes almost a lifetime to unbelieve it with your heart and your body <laughs> and your mind. So, um, it, so that, and this is why I advocate for healthy spirituality for children, because, you know, one of those foundational ideas about who God is and the foundation of a child's spirituality is so critical to the rest of a person's life. I mean, we know this from child development um, experts. We know that an investment in early education and investment in, you know, the attachment process uh, for infants, it's so critical because it kind of lays the groundwork for for everything, for your well-being. I mean, this is not to say that you're doomed if you have a bad childhood, but it's really worth our collective investment in best practices for children in, in every area of our lives if we want to, if we want to have a hope for a better world. Yeah, yeah totally. And you're in our thoughts about the body playing into that and the importance of 
faith communities figuring out ways to help raise our children um, in ways that they're aware of their body and comfortable and recognize it and are not suppressing it and are not giving over. I think sometimes when we feel like what I'm speculating is we feel overwhelmed and maybe in that vulnerable place, which is, by the way, synonymous with being human. I mean, it's not, that's not a, that's an amoral thing. That's, that's just right. being human. And, right. and when the religious people attach separation to it, and then as a, I'm, I'm just guessing and trying to think myself growing up and raising my own kids, but, you know, as a child, you feel overwhelmed. I think then the accuser, there's an opening for them, for the accuser to, slip in there and whisper, you know, you're bad, you're wrong, you should feel shame, you feel guilty and tempt us to do particular things. And, and the body becomes a place where that's manifest, it just comes out in our body. So I, I'm rambling. That's right. But. No, absolutely. I mean, that w- it was not even uh, subtle. That wasn't a subtle message. That was the direct message, uh, especially as a girl. As a girl, I was not to be angry. If I was angry, that was sin. And I was told that directly. So, <laughs> so yeah, your body responds because that anger is still there. You can suppress it, but it's still there. And so then your body kind of copes. You start to go into just survival mode. And, um, and that, just, that does stay. <laughs> it stays in your body until until something goes terribly wrong <laughs> and then you have to deal with the ramifications of it. Um, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's really quite violent to tell a child that they can't feel their feelings. I wished I would have asked her a few more follow-up questions about that last sentence. You know, it's violent to tell a child that they can't experience what they're experiencing or feel what they're feeling. And I think she uses that word intentionally and I think I see where she's going. You know, if you tell a child they have to repress or suppress, it'll turn into repression, and repression is something you cannot control. And it'll come out at some point in a child's life, probably later on when they're an adult. It's interesting how Jesus approaches children. He basically approaches it with the opposite kind of attitude. And I couldn't help but think of that when Cindy was talking about kids. Jesus says, unless you become like a child. And in far too many religious systems, adults are trying to tell a child to become like an adult. Like, here's what you believe. Here's what you have to think. You know, here's, quote unquote, systematic theology. At this point in my life, I'm thinking theology really isn't systematic. I mean, healthy theology is very unsystematic. At any rate, Jesus says, unless you become like a child, And children are the most embodied out of all of us. They're free in their bodies, aren't they? They run and they jump and they dance. And in effect, Jesus says, hey, be like that. Ask Cindy how we could help kids, how we could help all of us listen better to our bodies. Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) I've written a book about it (laughs) called Parenting Forward. Um, I talk about this a lot that in order to be a good parent, we, we really need to reparent ourselves or even let our parent, let our children parent us. Um, and so, like I said, if we want to learn about how to be chaotic and wild and vulnerable, 
um, our children are our best teachers, right? So I think as we look at their wildness and their free spirits, and we remember what it was like to be that way, and we reparent ourselves um, back into that kind of free spirit, then then we can um, then we'll realize that the violence done to us was bad, and that we won't repeat that cycle for them. <laughs> So, so yeah, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a team effort, I think, um, to create a more equitable, more free environment in our families. Um, it's both healing our own wounds and um, supporting our children in not developing some of the toxicity that we endured. Um, and so I think giving them or just creating, cultivating together this environment that we value our bodies, that we value our feelings and our emotions and our spirituality. We're open and curious. Um, we allow questions. We allow um, declarations. You know, there's a, a, a lot of us who have religious trauma are often resistant when our kids declare something like, um, yeah, like my co-host Brian was saying, his kids said something one day, just decided that God and Jesus were brothers, you know, and I don't know where he got that from. And it's not really very orthodox, but that's just what he decided. <laughs> and to say that that's okay, to let our children be the theologians that they, they deserve to be, that they get to make ideas um, and come up with theories and theologies about who God is and their relationship to God as well. Um, so, yeah, to just really foster that open environment and allow everyone's voices to be heard and allow every feeling to be valid and allow everybody to be honored. Back to uh, freedom. Right. I don't know who said it, but um, I think it's brilliant. Someone said, keep God free for people and keep people free for God. Mm, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> I, know. I like that. I wish I had written that. <laughs> Being uninvited from a denomination made it very clear to me that a part of what, that a great deal of what we do is not keeping people free for God or God free for people. I know Cindy has dealt with some of that in her life as well. I know I went through a similar struggle myself, a similar trauma where I was kicked out of a faith community that I was very committed to. And I know that I just felt really hurt and I needed that time and space to simply feel the way that I felt. And so I think that to kind of pay attention to how your body is to care for your body to um, to work on healing, I wish that people would do a lot more of that work before they go online. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's 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 a major problem is that there's a lot of reenactment of trauma. There's a lot of trauma bonding where they're just taking out these very terrible experiences that they've had. And they're wanting to find camaraderie and find vocabulary for their experience, but they're not yet caring for their bodies and their nervous systems. And um, so 
I think that's, that's a concern. Um, I think that when we are, when we feel safe, like we were talking about before, when we feel safe and we feel secure and we're confident of why we believe what we do now, then it's almost impossible to be fundamentalist. It's almost impossible to scapegoat because you're not trying to defend or argue or justify anything. You're just, you're just being human. You're just being who you are. Um, and I think for me, and that's maybe why you get the sense that I'm not like that is because I am very strong in the things that I believe in and I post and I share my message that I believe in about parenting children with justice for justice, but I'm not really telling anyone else that they have to do that, <laughs> right? I'm not defending my position. I'm not justifying it. I'm not reacting. Um, I'm just telling my story with as much truth and conviction and authenticity as I can. Um, and I think that that's all the while trying to be kind to myself and to, to heal, continue the healing journey for my own religious trauma. Um, so, yeah, I, I just would really encourage people to, to do self-care. I know that's kind of a hipster buzzword that a lot of people don't like. But ultimately, I do think that caring for yourself and your bodies is one of the best ways to prepare to engage meaningfully with the public and with others in your community. Keeping yourself free for God is a lifelong endeavor. I'm afraid that far too many of us are using particular issues, you know, to fight against them. In a way, we're fighting against the things inside of ourselves. We're not listening to ourselves and we're taking the fight online too quick or to the other person probably too quickly. And what's happening when we do that is we're, we're trying to manipulate that particular issue. We're trying to force that thing to fix ourselves to take a shortcut rather than just being human and living in the texture of the thing. So if you don't attempt self-care, self-health, giving grace to yourselves, then all this stuff will come back to eat you up. What's Nietzsche say? Beware when fighting the monster that you don't become the monster itself. So value your life. And I think one of the ways you can do that is to live with the tension of the particular problem that you're facing and experiencing. Listen to what it says about you. See what it says about you. Don't challenge people in order to validate yourself, necessarily. I mean, if you have to have the approval of others, you're probably not ready to bring that particular thing up yet. Challenge only when you've got it settled in your own life. Well, I should add... Ideally, this is what you do. Sometimes things happen where you kind of have to figure it out on the fly, don't you? But even then, you can practice carving time out in your life, in the middle of it, to think, to pray, and to be constantly asking yourself, why does this thing bother me so much? What is it about this thing? What is it about this issue? What does it say about me? And then listen to your body. Be embodied. Don't separate don't separate from the physicality of who you are. If you can answer what it is that's making your body react in a particular way, then you've done a great deal of the work, and you've done more work than most people will ever do in their whole lives. 
It'll help you master yourself in a way that won't cause you to lose yourself when you feel the spirit of truth coming upon you, compelling you to challenge and critique others. I think that's worth repeating. The more you get to know yourself and are aware of yourself, the more you won't lose yourself when you feel the spirit of truth compelling you to challenge and critique others. Because you'll have a bit of suspicion about your own motivations at that point. Wow, there's a lifetime of work to be done there. Good luck with that. I hope you enter into it. Hell, if I had more time, I'd probably talk about phones too and about our digital interconnectedness and how it's leading us to be very disembodied. I mean, we can take a walk in a beautiful park like I've been doing a lot lately. I think that's the only way I'm making it through the coronavirus thing. But we can be taking a walk through the park. We can be surrounded by people who are on their phones. It's the very picture of being disembodied. Then again, maybe this is the wrong time to talk about phones because it's the only way lots of us have made it through this. We're in the middle of a pandemic, for goodness sake. And for many of us, it's the only way to see people. So, okay, forget that part. Everyone, just go give yourself some grace today. Some self-care like Cindy talked about. Thanks for your time. I think we've talked about a lot of really interesting stuff today. I hope it's made you think. I hope it'll make you contemplate yourself, others, and God, and the religious system that you're a part of. And I hope it'll all make us better, healthier people. All right, I'll catch you next time. Peace.